Tonight, the aged man comes to an end. No more compromises. We're gonna be gods. <laughs> of course we are. Yeah! <laughs> I'm gonna be naughty. I'm gonna be a naughty vampire god. <laughs> Marilyn Manson can walk into our town and promote hate, violence, suicide, death, drug use, and Columbine-like behavior. I can say... Oh, wow. Okay, welcome to Take a Look Around, where it's open season on all suckheads all year round. My name is Shawnee Campion, and as always, I'm joined by my faithful, beautiful, and silky-voiced co-host, Alistair Bates. How are you, Batesy? I'm great. Fangs for that excellent introduction. <laughs> like fangs of a, of a certain... Uh, enough about me. Sean, I'm going great. How are you? <laughs> I'm fantastic. I'm fangtastic. If hey, kind of nice. did, did your joke, but a little better there. Yeah, a little bit. Oh, dear. We have a special treat for our listeners today. We, yeah, we do. For our 10th episode, we are joined by a very good friend of ours and special guest, Chapo Trap House's Australia correspondent, <laughs> Matt V. Brady, Mr. Grace Mugabe himself. How are you going, Matt? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. And it's a bloody pleasure to have you here, mate. On midnight, no less. Now, Matt, we like to kick it off by asking our guests, can you tell us about your favorite and earliest new metal movie memory? Uh, I can't think of one. Sorry. Uh, that's okay, Matt. Yeah, that's all right. That's just great, pal. Now, Al... I yes. know this film holds a very special place in your heart. That's right. But before we get started on the film, Sean, don't we have a regular segment that we always do? I've been scouring the horizon. I've brought myself the horizon, if you will. And I am looking to find out if there are any upcoming new metal films. Can I get a drum roll? Absolutely. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> For our extra special 10th episode okay. spectacular, there are no new new metal films. Oh. Yeah, that's oh. horrible. Well, maybe better luck next week. Yeah. Neck, like, you know, like neck fangs week. Go into yeah. The neck. <laughs> yeah, better, yeah, better luck neck week. There we yeah, go. Yeah, <laughs> love it. Anyway, the movie's Blade. Play clip. <laughs> For thousands of years, they have existed among us. You keep your eyes open. They're everywhere. Chances are you've seen them yourself and didn't know it. A secret nation. Our livelihood depends on our ability to blend in with a lust for power. We should be ruling the humans. These people are our food. They've got their claws into everything. Politics, finance, real estate. There's a war going on out there. He makes the weapons. I use them. There are worse things out tonight than vampires. Like what? Like me. Half human. Blade's mother was attacked by a vampire while she was pregnant. Half immortal. You got the best of both worlds. All our strengths 
None of our weaknesses. He is their greatest fear. Wesley Snipes. Steven Dorff. You're one of them, aren't you? No. I'm something else. Alrighty, this fantastic piece of cinema starts off in the swinging 60s, 1967 to be exact. The only way this could have been signposted better. Actually, it doesn't really even look like the 60s, like they didn't have a Credence song playing or like the start of all yeah. on the Watchtower. Um, but <laughs> Helicopters in the- now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but the movie starts with a young woman bleeding profusely from her neck. Whilst this all happens, a wallet drops out and shows an ID that just might as well have said, this is Blade's mom's ID. <laughs> like, I uh, just... wallet is. <laughs> I had to pause the film and it's a bit obscured, but I could have sworn that her name is Veronica Blade. <laughs> yeah, right on. Okay. So, yeah, so this lady, as, uh, as I said, is Blade's mom and she's totally bleeding out of her neck because she got bit by a vampire, but also she's totally giving birth to baby Blade who now through the, pa- the power of vampirism is given uh, the vampire power, I suppose. <laughs> this She's got a bun in the, the oven, and that bun's got fangs! <laughs> Blair! Um, this movie does a sweet hard cut to present day. It just says, now, at the bottom of the screen. And uh, it starts with the fantastic, infamous blood rave scene. That Just before we do get to the blood rave, uh, it's always interesting to me to think that more time has passed between 1998 and now than between 1967 and 1998 present day Bladesville. That's a bit of a whoa, man. (laughs) (laughs) Weird. Um, I mean, it's normal. Uh, (laughs) So I guess it's not that weird. Uh, Yeah, so this movie cuts straight to now, as we were saying, and to an infamous scene, which I can only describe as a blood rave, which is in the middle of a classic New York abattoir, as seen in films such as Cruising and uh, that episode of Just Shoot Me where Dennis Finch gets lost trying to find a nightclub. I've got a note written down here. This is the coolest thing I have ever seen. Yeah, man, I it's pretty rocking, and they're pl- they're getting down to that. Uh, which New Order song is it? That it's a uh, Confusion's Pump Panel Reconstruction Mix. Yeah, right. Order. That song goes hard. It was later sampled by Public Domain for their classic hit "Base in the Place, London." If you if you're looking for that, look look it up. It's a great song. The Vampire Rave. A young man gets dragged to it who kind of looks like Jerry O'Connell by famous film star Tracy Lords. And uh, as he rocks up to this vampire party, he realizes, hey, someone's not right here, man. Uh, I'm starting to get a weird vibe. Why aren't all these sweet chicks all over me with my backwards kangle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then lo and behold, blood starts raining from the ceiling, much like a classic Slayer album, Raining Blood. Now, according to extras on set, quite a lot of them left set not realizing just how terrible it'd be they shot this over the course of four days and yeah, these right. extras would be <laughs> drenched in blood non-stop and the whole a lot time of it, 
all of that fake blood is usually either just chocolate syrup and red food dye or some kind of glycerin and sugar combination as well. So it would be absolutely awful to be just covered in two for four days. Yeah. I really can't imagine anything worse. A guy sued them because he got a skin infection, but he, oh, lost, really? the, he lost the court case because... He couldn't prove he got to that, be in Blade. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he couldn't prove that he didn't have the skin infection before going in. And I contend that those tourists were decapitated before they entered the Krusty Land House of Knives. Next question. Knives. <laughs> Perfect. Blade kicks through the door or the ceiling, I can't remember, and then just starts fucking up all of these vampires and saving Jerry O'Connell from the vampire orgy. It's immediately clear that this film has got chops over the top of any other superhero film that has come before. The the martial arts, like, it has weight to it. Yeah, like, there's sure. a sense of editing and style that has been completely absent in the year before as Batman and Robin. And even George two years Clooney. before with Spawn, man. This is just, so, like, not even miles. It's like... I just don't know. It's not even in the same solar system as those last two movies. It's very competently shot. As you were saying, uh, one of the notes I took here was that the gun foo in this predates The Matrix by like two years, which is so crazy. And you could tell that The Matrix and this were mining a lot of similar territory in terms yeah, of their influences. Sure. Hong Kong action films, Absolutely. martial arts. Yeah, for sure. So Blade shoots up. I guess the secondary antagonist who Sean told me he was called Quinn. I've just been writing him down as the guitarist from Mastodon. Just Donald Logan as Quinn, who is fantastic in every single scene he appears in. His yeah, he, really great he, character actor, Donald Logan. You there's a lot of stuff that you just wouldn't recognize him in. I know him from the Thin Red Line. That's about oh, it. Okay, really. right. No, he's awesome. He's really the comedic relief for this film. Anyway, he gets set a light and it's pretty gnarly you're like oh, i'm never gonna see this it's incredibly frightening <laughs> yeah, sure. when they find him in the hospital and he comes back to life next up oh yeah it's a weird chills sh- yeah that's that 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 whole scene i i knew it was coming but it, i you know i still jolted up in my seat when he like pops back up donald logan's character quinn gets wheeled into hospital his corpse still smoking on the gurney which is pretty gnarly and uh, he gets sent straight away to the morgue attendants who start carving him up and taking blood samples there's something a bit iffy about those blood samples yeah, so we'll get a hospital blood lady. I can't remember what kind of doc- pathologist. Uh, her name is Karen. She is a hematologist. Thank you very much. There we go. Oh, oh, oh some of us went to university. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I studied film. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, this is also kind of where they shoe in the scientific explanation for vampirism. By looking at the blood sample, they kind of ascertain that the hemoglobin metabolizes three times faster than regular human blood, kind of indicating that vampirism isn't a curse like it has been in prior vampire films, but rather more of a uh, genetic or or pandemic kind of thing. More on that later, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) 
Anyway, as Mastodon Guy attacks Karen and Curtis, who is... Karen played by the fantastic Nabushne Wright. Okay. Who, she's really great in this. She really holds her own. She was... This was one of her first roles, and she is self-professed as not being cut out for Hollywood. Oh, okay. She would later retire from public life in about 2001 or so. Oh, right. What was their last movie? Uh, probably this, I think. Oh, right. Short, go, sharp, shock yeah, to the system. Go out on top, man. <laughs> yes. So the guy from Mastodon rocks up and uh, tries to attack Karen. Oh, he manages to get a bite in there. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, he sinks his fangs. A big hunkin' chump. (laughs) Yeah, Blade throws her out of the window to protect her for some... I don't know how that... (laughs) Blade turns up and full-on yeets Karen across (laughs) the way into an abandoned building. Cops appear out of nowhere just firing... There's six of them, and they just start firing their guns immediately in a hospital. With some really great, like, uh, kind of zoom-ins on the guns being shot. Like, really hard kind of pull-ins on the shooting. Donald Logue's Quinn gets chucked out of a window as well into... An ambulance in a really oh, disturbing yeah. sequence like, where he gets birth. straight back up. Yeah, he falls into a woman giving birth and then just catapults down the way. And I was just, I wrote down, this movie is terrifying. Yeah, Quinn's character when he's in a burn suit. Ugh, yeah, it's pretty it's unhinged, creepy. man. Yeah, I guess this is uh, where the other part of the plot really starts to develop it kind of cuts to a i guess you'd call them a vampire un who are talking about vampire affairs it's kind of revealed that vampires and humans have lived side by side and mutually cooperate with each other I think it's the American Democratic Party. Wow, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I love love that in Vampire Town Hall, there's, like, everybody. There's, like, Jamaican vampires. There's, like, (laughs) Arabic vampires. And then there's vampires. Mongolian vampire. Yeah, yeah. Then there's the vampire who looks like Orson Welles. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the Vampire UN is led by classic... German character actor Udo Kier. He's he looks like a baby in this. Oh, yeah, he's it's so crazy, young. right? And he also kind of. Looks- I mean, he's old, but he's young. Yeah. He really. Um. <laughs> they really kind of go for the the classic Hammer horror Dracula imagery with how he looks as well. Like I just kind of got. Christopher Lee with his slick back. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's where they're trying to come from with this film. Like, they're the stuffy older generation. And we're then introduced to Stephen Dorff's Deacon Frost, who's kind of the, like... He's like the MTV vampire, like maybe would have been bitten around the time of the Lost Boys and now he's yeah. dressed like he's he's dressed like he's walked off set of Baz Luhrmann's Romeo yeah, and Juliet. Yeah, sure. Yeah, he's definitely got that bad boy Dawson's Creek sexy kind of thing going for well, him. Well, he was he was really on the up and up before this film. He had just done a number of films with Harvey Keitel and Jack Nicholson. He was thought of as the one that was going to break into serious acting out of that pack of actors surrounding Leonardo DiCaprio's Pussy Patrol. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like Tobey Maguire, Brad Renfro, David Copperfield, the magician, (laughs) and of course, Leonardo (laughs) DiCaprio. But unfortunately, this would really be the critical and artistic high point for Stephen Dorff. He he really... Bit, bit of dust after this. Yeah, uh, he 
Was he in the last season of True Detective? He was, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, I no, still that was him. Yeah, I don't think anyone has. It's just one of those shows that we hear exists, but actually doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's kind of one of the really great things about this film that so far it has really kind of displayed that there's just a fantastic supporting cast. Everyone is so perfectly cast in this, none more so than Chris Christopherson. I found him when he was 13. He'd been living on the streets, feeding off the homeless. His need for blood had taken hold of puberty. I took him for a vampire at first. Almost killed him too. Then I realized what he was. Blade's mother was attacked by a vampire while she was pregnant. She died, but he lived. Unfortunately, he'd undergone certain genetic changes. He can withstand garlic, silver, even sunlight. And he's got their strength. Chris Christopherson is such an inspired casting choice. Like, out of anybody, like one of like counterculture's greatest figures and one of the greatest songwriters who's ever lived is for some reason blades mechanic who smokes cigarettes <laughs> yeah. whilst filling up cars with petrol <laughs> he's he's i wouldn't even call him the van helsing of this he's like a cross between um alfred from batman and the and dude from the big lebowski <laughs> yeah, sure. it really is uh it's just such a great choice like every fucking line he delivers is just spat through gravel and he just it's nuts man like chris christopherson just really sells every part of it where i forget that it's chris christopherson until i realize fucking hell he's still so hot at like 77 like it's wild i wasn't really familiar with him as a as a musician i mean i I know the name and everything like that but he he just like he's doing a fantastic job every time he's on on screen he's giving it his all but, like, if you think of his contemporaries for, like, if they cast them, like, it would be casting someone like fucking Johnny Cash or Bob Dylan. Oh, wow, really? <laughs> yeah, like, that's the kind of pedigree, like, Chris Christopherson is. Like, he wrote songs for Johnny Cash, and now he's fighting vampires. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. So, Blade reveals through a cutaway scene just before this that his in- his and Whistler's entire operation is run through stealing expensive watches off the vampires they kill yeah. and trading them to a guy in an apothecary. Yeah, who yeah. They buy, they trade watches for garlic powder. <laughs> yeah, when I saw that, I realised the film that a lot of people talk about this being the beginning of superhero films being taken seriously but that scene in particular made me realize the biggest influence this film would have in modern filmmaking is the John Wick series. Yeah, for sure. Like it's world building, it's casting choices, it's attitude towards action and its characterization. If you're a fan of John Wick and you haven't seen Blade before or in a long time, just cart these out of the DVD collection. Just yeah. get them get them on the telly as soon as possible. What what I really like about this scene as well is I think it really kind of signposts this post Wu-Tang kind of Afrocentricity mixed with Asian
Christian mysticism that really kind of helps you understand this film's aesthetic. And it really is like a huge homage to a lot of black exploitation films that featured oriental fetishism and deep respect of ancient Chinese wisdom and martial arts as a form of control. It's really, I think it's a really fantastic, just little detail that they put into this movie and uh, making its cinematic language really... Uh, eloquent that little scene really fills you in on blade's life more than most of the absolutely film does than any exposition does you could say that it has more in common with ghost dog way of the samurai yeah, than absolutely. it does captain that's, that, that's totally what that that, that and uh yeah. but yeah more in, in common with ghost dog way of the samurai than it would with captain america yeah for sure we once again return back to deacon frost who is hanging out hacking inside the secret vampire library. This is all kind of happening whilst Blade is driving down the street in his car real fast. Anytime the car turns a corner, it makes a Jaguar sound. Did you hear that? (laughs) Yeah, I did. I love that during Deacon Frost's hacking scene, when you say hacking, it's him running like a DOS script on his computer while he like slab squats in the corner listening to yeah. drum and bass on his headphones. <laughs> <laughs> like it's the most like accurate portrayal of hacking I have ever seen on a film. <laughs> Udo Kier busts Deacon Frost in the Hacking the Ancient Vampire manuscript. This is all happening whilst Blade is rescuing Karen, who has escaped from Whistler and Blade and has gone back to her home where she's greeted by police officers. This is another fantastic bit of world building that kind of explains that the vampires have been subjugating some people and have been using people in positions of authority to kind of... It's almost as if capitalists are the real bloodsuckers. (laughs) So true. Blade quickly rescues Karen before taking her to this amazing Japanese nightclub with these Japanese schoolgirl rappers doing Japanese schoolgirl Beastie Boys rap. Oh, that that sequence is so incredible and it's the way it's shot and all of the incredible character actors they brought in for for extra work. Like it looks like something straight out of a out of a nineties John Woo film or a Johnny Toe or Sea Hark film. Like it's it's very well telegraphed that they're big fans of Hong Kong action cinema in this sequence. Yeah, man, it's Fucking so cool. Whilst they're at the Japanese Titty Rave Club bar, it's revealed that this is where the records are kept as Blade and Karen find a grotesquely obese vampire called Pearl. This is one of the most insane things about this film and the fucking scene, like Blade just torturing this huge blag of flesh who's <laughs> grotesquely squealing. I um, watched the making I'm- of sequence for this shortly before we recorded where the production designer for the film talked about just how much of this film really came down to Stephen Norrington, the director. He knew what he wanted, and what he wanted was a giant, silicon, obese, (laughs) bizarre vampire that had gotten so full of blood, like a mosquito biting into a cow, that they'd just fallen down in place and just sat there for hundreds of years. The production team spent $7,000 on silicon to build this suit. Oh, wow. 
worth every cent, man. This this there is not another scene in any movie like this. It's it's truly grotesque. <laughs> I think got more in common with Resident Evil or something. Any other it's a Marvel very movie. video game sequence. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Pearl fucking Zoom meetings. Deacon Frost is at now. <laughs> <laughs> little twenty twenty reference up. for you there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, this vampire party, everyone's just snowballing fucking chunks of meat from back and forth to each other. It's really gross. Obviously, Deacon Frost, though, he ain't in the mood to fucking party. Pearl gives the jig up and tells tells Deacon Frost that Blade's down there just chilling in the vampire And Blade vault. gets to use his famous line that it is open season on all suck heads <laughs> yeah some oh, fantastic man. ad-libbing from wesley snipes who <laughs> is just gravitating between mugging for the camera and being this reserved stoic john wayne type figure like at such breakneck speeds that it, it reminds me of say a john travolta or a Nicolas Cage style performance yeah for sure it's an un- it is definitely an unhinged and a pretty kind of primal performance like something those like those guys would give this vampire vault that blade breaks into is revealed to have big pieces of flesh with magic words written into them it's pretty gross <laughs> I really was like got proper skin crawling it, it's a I great set that. piece it, it, yeah it looks Blade gets awesome. ambushed. Yeah, Blade and Karen get ambushed and they're stuck in where all of a sudden Chris Christopherson just bursts through the wall with another fantastic quote, which is, did I catch you motherfuckers at a bad time? <laughs> <laughs> Got you fuckers at a bad time? You're oh, wow. Apparently he was a real prickly pear on set, like... Yeah, of course he is. Look at him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope he was having a good time. This whole I really scene, do. I kind of noticed, has just truly horrible foley where all the sound effects are about a thousand decibels louder than absolutely anything. And it's all the same whoosh, 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 uh, karate sound effect being just used over and over and over. The sound design of this film is really interesting because I was blown away by after all of the recent films we've watched, just how quiet this film was in its meditative moments. Yeah. Like there was genuine silence during a lot of films, uh, sorry, a lot of sequences that a lot of the films we've watched recently just don't have. They're always gravitating and moving from one thing to the other at breakneck speeds, but this gives itself time to breathe. It's, it's two hours as opposed to it very easily could have been cut to an hour 30 yeah. but they went for the two hours and it really helps the film yeah totally it, it really kind of gives it a whole nice sense of ambiance and build up and tension it's 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 great after this whole sequence is kind of where the the next 30 minutes take a real kind of quiet dip this is where the the whole proper explanation of blade is finally given to the audience where it's revealed that he is a daywalker and that because of his vampiric abilities and his human roots, he's able to also be a vampire and go out in the sun and do ordinary human stuff. Yeah, I thought that was crazy that that took like an hour and a bit to properly go in depth. Not a bad thing. I, I think it's fantastic that it's such a integral part of a character wasn't revealed fully until 
more than halfway into the movie. It's so crazy when you think about other comic book movies and origin films. Where- it's something that superhero films have always struggled with, whether or not to just kind of get on with the show or to just spend oh pointless hours with hand-wringing self-righteousness about whether to use their powers for good or evil. Blade just declares that it's open season (laughs) on all suckheads and y'all can figure me out later. exactly, man. Yeah, after this scene, it cuts to Deacon Frost getting his fuck on inside of his cool black Mustang. Once he kind of empties the pipes, he pops the boot with Udo Kier who's been stuffed into the back. Udo Kier's character is then in what is a pretty graphic scene has his fangs removed by Deacon Frost and is left out in the sun to melt whilst everyone wears Daft Punk helmets. It looks like something out of Jason and the Argonauts, which is crazy because I looked up. This director was also supposed to direct the remake of Clash of the Titans, the uh, 80s remake. So Stephen Norrington is a really has comes from a really interesting special effects background that we'll get to a bit later. Yeah, okay, cool. His special effect, his special effects work, the people he hires, his sense of vision for this film, it's just top notch work. Yeah, yeah, it's it it shows even if it hasn't aged well, it still shows that a lot of detail has been put into it. Deacon Frost returns to the Vampire UN where he throws Udo Kier's fangs at everybody which somehow makes him the vampire boss. I, I didn't really understand that. But uh, I don't know how it, what goes down at your work, Al, yeah. but, uh, you know, that's how it goes in, in the big bad world of finance. Yeah, of course. After this, it's daytime again. Blade has a weird meat cute out in the street with Deacon Frost who's covered in uh, head to toe in sunblock. I absolutely adore this sequence. So Stephen cool. Dorff is just chewing the scenery uh, for all of his monologues. There's a really just like cringeworthy sequence where he calls Wesley Snipes and Uncle Tom yeah. for liking humans. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Yeah, and, th- and then as uh, Stephen Dorff uh, refers to all humans as cattle, who he couldn't care if they lived or died, the camera just pans to just countless Asian people walking down the street. I don't know what they were going for here, but it's... uh, Uh, Stephen, baby! Yeah, this scene rules, Stephen man. Dorf then proceeds to, to throw a little girl into a hot dog car. Yeah, just yeet <laughs> this little girl halfway across the public park into a hot dog car. Uh, ruled. <laughs> Blade gets home and realizes that Whistler has been ambushed by vampires. I do like that Chris Christopherson asks him to finish him off. And Blade says no. And then Chris Christopherson says, All right, give me the gun. And Blade's like, Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you can kill yourself. Yeah, I can't do it. You do it, man. Then <laughs> after that, there's. But old, old Yellow was my dog. I'll kill him. <laughs> um, there's this great fucking montage after where Blade is making bullets and doing a. Uh, vampire buddhist meditation and stuff all like really silently oh it's so good that scene where he like pulls the house plant out by its roots yeah and then stares at it and cuts the roots <laughs> off i was like is there some greater significance did wesley snipes insist upon this what's going on here it does another really big hard cut to deacon frost just chilling at home it was kind of here that i realized that 
Stephen Dorff has been smoking this whole movie. Every scene he's in, he's crushing <laughs> cigarettes. It's shown that like people who are human and get turned vampires can age. So f- can vampires also get emphysema or some kind of other degenerative disorders that humans are prone to? No, Al, shut the fuck <laughs> up. <laughs> this is where Deacon explains his plan to become La Magra, the blood god. La Magra! La Magra! By sacrificing everybody in the, the vampire CIA. I a big La Magra in the toilet hey. this morning. Tell you <laughs> Blade then suddenly rocks up on a motorcycle where he's greeted by a vampire SWAT team. Oh, it's it's so cool when he stabs them with garlic and they pop. Oh, I love it. There's this really fantastic back and forward between Quinn and Deacon Frost where Quinn is just like... I mean, this dude is fucking bad. Like, he's he's like, you have 20 guys around him. I was there, man. He's got shitty throws at you. you Like the sword. Yeah, the sword. Exactly. Yeah, you throw in the air. Catch you underneath. Yeah, shut the fuck up. It killed me. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Apparently, Donald Logue and Stephen Dorff, very fast friends on the set of yeah, this Yeah, right film, on. And are still friends to this oh, day. Sweet. Which I, I adore. They work so well back and forth, as you would have heard in the cold open. Yeah, this absolutely. Episode. This whole scene is also notable. For the rest of the movie, Deacon Frost is wearing the lamest teleconferencing headset uh, like the whole time for no, for no reason, just like one of those shitty Bluetooth uh, microphones that are wireless. It would have looked extremely cool. Yeah, in absolutely. The Blade makes his way through Deacon Frost's compound, where he busts into Deacon Frost's room, only to find his mum, who <laughs> turns out plot twist she turned into a vampire. And second plot twist, Deacon Frost has been porking Blade's mum this whole time. <laughs> Like, she she even says, like, years before Blade turned up, he's been, he's been fucking her for years and years and years. That's so... Before, he, before Blade started it's killing so, people. It, it just feels like... Yeah, this film, sure, it's about a vampire cabal and a half-human, half-vampire murderer who sets out to massacre the cabal. That makes sense, but the whole Blade's mom getting fucked by Stephen Dorff the whole time is just such a... <laughs> weird plot twist (laughs) i completely forgot all about that so when i saw it i it really hit me like a fucking ton of bricks (laughs) (laughs) so steven dorf's deacon frost god that's a cool name he reveals that his plan for la magra has been to kidnap all the 12 evil old-timey vampires of the Labour Party <laughs> and uh, put them in the Temple of... Uh, uh, Eternal uh, Night. Temple of Blood, probably. No, but, Eternal yeah. Night. I, I, I wrote down Temple of Fright, which just sounds like a ride at Warner Brothers Movie World or something. No, Temple of Eternal Night. Pretty much just taken note for note in Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, absolutely. For what they were going for what there. Kind of- threw me for a pickle was how did nobody know that a giant secret underground facility had been made out of marble underneath LA like <laughs> oh it's it's addressed in the film Deacon Frost turns angrily to Orson Welles vampire and says these guys just forgot all about it <laughs> oh well that's good then <laughs> this is the home stretch as well, but a good part of the home stretch is a massive fucking exposition dump where they say they need to, they explain how they need to sacrifice Blade. Blade's mum 
wants to fuck Blade now, but she's a vampire because it's technically not incest anymore. Maybe that's why this film was so popular. Oh, yeah, America. sure. The whole weird incest like. fetish. <laughs> but I've heard yeah, about... I love that <laughs> shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like that whole scene where Blade's mom is sexually cutting off his bulletproof vest and stuff and sticking him in the foam and silicon machine. It's so weirdly sexy. Like, it blows my mind there's a Marvel movie where there's implied desire for incest. <laughs> Well, I, I read an interesting oral history with a lot of the cast and crew and production for this film uh, in the lead up to this. All of them <laughs> were just like, do we want to do this? And Stephen Norrington, the director, was like, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Let's do uh, it! <laughs> there's just this fantastic scene. Quinn and Frost are talking about how they're going to be the sweetest vampire gods as well. It's just these... Oh, yeah. That was used in the, cold, the open, cold Open. But it's just yeah. too bros just being like man i'm gonna be a sweet vampire god (laughs) (laughs) they're so adorable i i love both of them that's so cool they throw karen into this magic pit she rescues blade the prophecy is foretold and the ritual is undertaken there's this amazing sequence where all of it looks like the quickening from Highlander, where yeah, all the totally. the vampires turn into skeletons with bat and wings the skeletons and fly. fly. And, yeah, that rules. And they all like gel into Deacon Frost, becomes the blood god Lamagra. And I was really hoping he he'd turn into the bad guy from the end of the mask. The shares an executive producer with the mask, and I was really hoping they'd be like. Yeah, let's get that guy back. But unfortunately, it's just it's just Deacon Frost. Man, with some that would sweet, be a sweet crossover. <laughs> some sweet contact lenses, and he has a big, sweet fight with a yeah, booling ass blade who is fucking pissed after killing his mom. And to be honest, like we've been watching so many new metal films lately with no climax, no climactic moment that it just felt so fulfilling to have a junkie XL breakbeat track play while there's a massive big sword fight in the temple of eternal night. I've missed this. I needed it. Yeah, it rules, right? <laughs> Wait, a movie that kind of makes sense and is fun <laughs> and confidently <Yeah>. made? <laughs> oh my goodness. Blade then proceeds to turn over his all-time classic line that you would have heard day in, day out on our introduction to the podcast, which is... <laughs> Blade then chucks a whole bunch of cool garlic skewers into him. He blows up in special effects that look straight out of Akira stuff. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. rules. (laughs) Then the movie just kind of ends with Blade telling Karen that she needs to find a better vampire cure whilst he runs off to Russia. Yeah, it's it's super rude, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, right? She's just like, come and live with me, we can be together. And he's like, whatever, find a better cure, dude. Fuck (laughs) (laughs) off. There was um, an extra scene that never made it into the film that I watched in the deleted scenes on YouTube where in that same sequence, directly after saying, hey, uh, I need you to find a better cure, she says, hey, look, who's that? And they turn around and there's Stephen Norrington, the director, standing on top of a building dressed as a samurai. And Blade says, 
that's Michael Morbius, the living vampire. Oh no, shit! That's <laughs> later <wild>. to <laughs> later to be played later this year by Jared Leto in the upcoming oh Sony God. Pictures film Morbius. I fucking forgot that was coming out. Holy shit, that's gonna suck so much. <laughs> yeah. And we're gonna <laughs> to all of our beautiful fans out there that sign up for the Patreon. Alistair and myself are going to go see Morbius opening day. I will be rip-shittingly drunk and Alistair will be rip-shittingly high and we will record yeah. this event <laughs> for any Patreon subscribers <laughs> to listen to. All 700 of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we almost got a, a Morbius and Blade crossover that never happened. Probably for oh. the best, to be honest. Yeah, because, I mean, the sequels to this film are pretty decent. Well, I guess we'll mm, see. I guess we'll <laughs> see. Uh, <laughs> this film is just fun. When we kick off into the production, I'd like to kind of separate it into... There were three main auteur voices on this film who I like to call the Blade Trinity. Has anyone used that name oh, at all? Nice. <laughs> Is that up for grabs? No way, man. No? All right. <laughs> so basically, it'd be a joint production between Marvel Comics, New Line Cinema, and Wesley Snipes himself. Now, in the opening credits of the film, we see three names as the main executive producer. Number one, Stan Lee, the bon vivant Di Walt Disney character of Marvel Studios, uh, well known for inventing Spider-Man, the X-Men, burning every bridge he's ever had and ripping off uh, the yeah. livelihoods of everyone, <laughs> Countless of that, other great everyone that he has ever employed. He was a real piece of shit human and I'm glad he's gone. Underneath Stan Lee's name are two slightly less familiar familiar names Avi Arad and Jimmy Calamari <laughs> to properly hey. understand the context for these two names we need to look at what was going on in the motion picture industry and with the comics industry at the time after a speculator bubble that we would have covered in the earlier Spawn episode of Take a Look Around. The comics industry, and in particular Marvel Comics, were in completely dire straits by the end of the 90s. They were current in the process of a large corporate raider battle between the Israeli heads of Toybiz, a large toy manufacturer run by Ike Perelmutter and Avi Arad, who had the license to Marvel properties to make toys out of and didn't want their cash cow to dry. The other force in the picture was Carl Icahn, who was one of the corporate raiders of the 80s, who was the basis for Gordon Gecko, the villain of uh, Oliver Stone's Wall Street. Carl Icahn is most famous for during antitrust lawsuit with the, the United States Senate. He was asked why he did a hostile takeover of TWA Airlines, and he replied, would you ask Willie Mays why he jumped for a basketball? Oh, yeah, wow. sounds like a cool-ass <laughs> dude. Yeah. New Line Cinema had bought the rights to Tomb of Dracula, the Marvel property uh, created by Gene Colan and Marv Wolfman in the early 90s. They had been trying to develop Blade, one of the characters from Tomb of Dracula, this whole time. They'd started off pitching it to Denzel Washington, and by the late 90s, they were close to finalizing a deal with LL Cool J as the Blade character, and Chet Lee as the Deacon Frost character. This yeah, all right. fell apart as LL Cool J went on to do the fantastic 
fantastic tour de force that is Deep Blue Sea. And Jet Li yeah. went on to do Lethal Weapon 4. Also a, also great, a great movie. Around this time, around this time, New Line, New Line took over with Wesley Snipes. Avi Arad in this whole picture was the head of Marvel's cinematic wing at the time and was the big pusher in Marvel Industries to push these characters. He had a rousing speech. Each of Marvel's properties were worth at least a billion dollars each as properties. He saw the future of Marvel Industries. Famously, in the early 90s, they'd sold off the rights to Spider-Man for $225,000. Like, just nothing. Now, at this point, the biggest Marvel property to have succeeded was jack fucking shit what the incredible hulk in the 1970s like yeah, nothing yeah. so they were really uh, uh, hey how yeah, the <laughs> they were they were really untested waters at this point and that's how yeah. carl Icahn, who installed his own ceo into marvel jimmy calamari i shit you not this is this guy's real name he sounds like a hey it's jimmy calamari. he sounds like he's on johnny sack's crew in the sopranos yeah. so after jimmy calamari fired avia rad and then Blade came out. Blade was a resounding success at the box office and showed that Marvel had potential uh, genuinely as a studio and as intellectual property. The bankruptcy case against Marvel was solved with Ike Perlmutter reinstating Avi Arad into the picture. They would sell off Spider-Man off the back of Blade's success to Sony Pictures for $10 million dollars but they would also offer the entire Avengers roster to Sony Pictures for $25 million. They must be completely shitting themselves that they didn't pick out Iron Man, Thor, Captain America for literally nothing. It's crazy, right? And and now that, you know, there's still just this huge... Just with Spider-Man itself, this intellectual property is, you know, not only is he ubiquitous, but he's also legal hearings to this day that are being held because of who can who cannot use certain characters from spider-man it's 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 this all stems back to this deal with sony pictures which was before marvel really straightened out all of their assets and their intellectual property which they really were selling for cents on the dollar they were selling it to everyone and anyone who would listen the rights to the fantastic four until 2015 belong to a german industrial film producer called constantine films like it's a mess Oh, <laughs> yeah, it sucks. <laughs> Blade was a success for Marvel in that it showed that their intellectual properties meant something, but it only netted them $25,000 in licensing costs. They made nothing off the back of this. Yeah, right. Now, the other big figure in the production would be New Line Cinema. Now, New Line was like a big horror distributor and producer during the 80s and 90s. They're most famous, of course, for the Nightmare on Elm Street series. We covered a lot of new lines, ups and downs in our Freddy vs. Jason episode. What they brought to the table was a young writer by the name of David S. Goya. Now, a lot of people talk about Zack Snyder as being responsible for this real grim and gritty take on superheroes that is just 
permeated cinemas for so long. But really, you can trace a lot of this back to David S. Goya, who is not only responsible for all of the Blade films, but wrote the script for every single one of Christopher Nolan's Batman films. All of the Zack Snyder films are by him. He wrote Superman vs. Batman. He wrote wrote Justice League. He wrote everything. David S. Goyer is famously was brought on by Christopher Nolan because of his work on Blade, where Christopher Nolan said, we want to do for superheroes what Blade Runner did for science fiction, which I've always thought was an interesting look at what he did with those Batman films. Yeah, totally. The third Um, piece of the puzzle would be Wesley Snipes, who had been trying to make Black Panther films since the early 90s, when that fell apart at the seams and LL Cool J went on to his utterly stunning tour de force in Deep Blue Sea, he would come on to Blade. On top of Wesley Snipes, he would come kind of be the executive producer over the look of the film, along with the director, Stephen Norrington, who is a fucking insane man like if you look at Stephen Norrington's work in terms of what he produced working as special effects he worked under Rick Baker most famous for American Werewolf in London he would be he was the model maker for uh, Russell Mullikai's concert film with Duran Duran he worked for the creature effects crew on Aliens he designs okay. that stupid dog that talks in Jim Henson's The Storyteller. He created oh, he yeah. created the robot in Richard Stanley's Hardware, and he was the main designer oh, for cool. the special effects in Aliens and Alien Three. Like he's a fucking yeah, cool right, ass okay. dude. And if you ever listen to yeah, them, that's, some that's fucking like Sean One Hundred and One. You got Duran Duran, Alien, Jim Henson. I love that shit. <laughs> and like, if you look at the making of this film and you talk to anyone that's involved, not that we did, he he was like in charge of every single piece of the production. This was his baby. He, after this film, would turn down almost everything under the sun to direct a passion project of his, which was the ill-fated Sean Connery starring Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that was... Which sucks, man. It's such a fucking bomb that Sean Connery walked away from Hollywood and has never worked in it ever again. It's so nuts, because that's, I think, one of the crowning achievements of comic book writing ever. Like, I... Like, that is a franchise that should be redone now. I, I just... I feel like if people made League of Extraordinary Gentlemen now... It'd really work as, say, a Netflix series or something like that. Like, Yeah, totally. It's, it's a real high concept, and it just didn't work. Uh, Stephen Norrington has been attached to everything under the sun since, including an Akira reboot, uh, the original Ghost Rider film, and he just hasn't done anything since League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. If you have a look at his hashtag on Instagram, you can see he's just teaching kids and teenagers how to do special effects in rural England he doesn't want a th- that's cool. he doesn't want a thing to do with Hollywood he's done with it that's so cool though that's like a really just a cool thing to do I think a lot more filmmakers should really look after the next generation of filmmakers by you know hands-on kind of uh uh education which I realize you all are gonna take uh 
and twist on. Yeah. <laughs> really give him yeah, a hands on education. Huh? <laughs> really give him a leg up, huh, Al? And maybe the other leg yeah, up. Yeah. You fucking piece of shit. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Um, the soundtrack <laughs> to this film is, uh, <laughs> what sets this film apart from other new metal films is that there is absolutely no new metal on the soundtrack. Uh, the soundtrack was executively produced by New Orleans rap legend Master P and features a lot of East Coast, Dirty South, and there's a New Order and Junkie XL track, but you know, there's... There's tracks by Gangstar, M.O.P., K.R.S.One, and Mr. Cal. Even like a dancehall track with Bounty Killer. I feel like it's what you were talking about earlier with that post Wu Tang Clan yes. sense of black exploitation mixed with Asian mysticism. That the soundtrack really works in that sense. Now, this film really yes, set absolutely, set the yeah. tone, style, production, and aesthetic wise for new metal films to follow. But, I mean, I would say that the two standout tracks, of course, during the Blood Rave being New Order's Confusion Pump Panel remix and that Junkie XL track are really excellent examples of what was going on in what they called Electronica at the time. It was almost having Electronica, as the press was calling it, which we'd probably call Big Beat now, was really the the new metal of dance music in a sense. If new metal is the logical, the illogical evolution of hardcore punk, metal and rap, then Big Beat would probably be illogical evolution of disco disco. and house music. (laughs) Artists such as um, Fatboy Slim, The Chemical Brothers, Groove Terminator, that big bombastic sample-based sound from the late 90s and early 2000s is all over this. I think its biggest DJ of the time was Paul Oakenfeld, and he would... Yeah, he'd yeah. really go on to make his mark on the Matrix films two years later. Yeah, he he's even got a song or two on uh, the Blade. 2 Yeah, soundtrack. and he he's a really canny guy that would have understood the similarities between big beat electronica and new metal. He really also understood kind of rap at that time as well, and a lot of his songs around that era featured very kind of quote unquote hardcore kind of rappers. There's still. Ice Cube pre, are we there yet? We're, we're talking about Paul Oakenfield too much. <laughs> <laughs> Man, so we've talked about the soundtrack, we've talked about production, we have talked about the plot. But Sean, if we're going to give this film a rating, what rating are we going to give it using our patented and trademarked Bodies hit the floor score. I am personally going to give this five bodies hitting the floor and then they're all blowing up all pussy because they've been filled with garlic and then they're exploding and it looks cool as shit. Rockin' man, I'm going to give this film five bodies and all of the fingers have been cut off and the fingers are now the points that I'm awarding it <laughs> as well. So, like, uh, 50... No, a hundred bodies have hit the floor. This film is I don't I know the word masterpiece has been cheapened, but this film is a masterpiece. <laughs> I literally just worked out why Master P's name is Master P. 
Oh my god. Yeah, right. <laughs> Fucking god. <laughs> yeah. I literally was like 27 when I realized what the the, the Bahamian. Like oh my the god, I didn't realize that either. Oh yeah, Jesus. Right. <laughs> so we've given it a uh, let the bodies hit the floor score, but now is the most important rating of all, the Six degrees of dust number. Six degrees of dust. 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 Shake my friends tonight. I'm excited. I want to hear it. This film has a dust rating of two. The connection is the soundtrack, would you believe it, with DJ Premier, who produced the classic and together now song by Limp Bizkit the more you know I I can do you one better on that sure Stephen Dorff is uh in the car with Ben Stiller at the start of the Roland music video oh shit (laughs) (laughs) I I went yeah I saw that early I watched it earlier today and I was like Al's gonna forget this (laughs) yeah no fuck I totally did beautiful thank you for your assistance sean it's always good sometimes the computer is a wee tad unreliable yeah sure the computer Uh. now i'm sure (laughs) i think a lot of our fans right now are wondering hey sean al i'm sitting at home alone thinking i'm going to die if i go outside but what would happen if vampires were real? Now, we reached out to Denise Jenkins, a public health nurse working in Queensland with a master's in communicable disease study about what would happen if vampires came to Australia. And she had this to say. 